our third edition of the Courts in Session, a clinical lessons through a legal lens. In this session, we'll review two hypothetical legal controversies in urology using a mock courtroom setting. The first session will relate to opioid overdose in patients with chronic flank pain, and the second will relate to sepsis and death after prostate needle biopsy. I'd like to introduce our judge for the session, and you will be our jury. The judge is Diane Bieri, our general counsel for the AUA, and she will introduce our lawyers, our attorneys, as well as our, our panelists. Diane. Good afternoon. And welcome to our second edition of court, third edition, sorry, of course in session. I'm Diane Beery, AUA General Counsel, but for the next 90 minutes I will be Judge Beery, presiding over two hypothetical controversies. A few points before I call the first case. I want to stress that these are fictional cases created by our physician moderators and physician panelists. They're designed to be realistic in terms of the medical information presented, but they do not portray actual patients or litigation. And please remember also that all of our physician panelists are also playing parts. Uh, despite the fact that we are using the physician's real name for simplicity, what they say here today is designed to fit the hypothetical cases and not necessarily to reflect what they would say or do in their own practices. We've tried to make the cases as realistic as possible from a medical perspective, but we are taking some license on the legal side. In each case, you'll hear the defendant, the plaintiff's expert, and the defense expert. But you'll only hear highlights, not the hours or days of uh, examination that you might hear in a real case. And we are assuming that all of the experts are qualified, so you won't hear um, the series of questions that you would hear in a real case uh, talking about the experts experience and qualifications. Uh, we're also focusing on legal lessons, I'm sorry, clinical lessons, so don't expect courtroom melodrama. And finally, we're on a tight schedule, so I will not be shy about keeping everyone on time. Um, I won't be delivering any verdicts in these truncated cases, but there will be an opportunity at the end of each case for our attorney panelists to share their perspectives on the case or on medical liability litigation generally. And if time permits, we may also invite our moderators to uh, say a few words about the key clinical points. Without further delay, let me introduce our first case and panelists briefly. Our panelists' full bios are available online. Uh, the moderator who will present the facts of the first case is Dr. Deborah Leitner. Dr. Arthur, Arthur Smith is playing the part of the defendant. Dr. Greg Offenberg is the plaintiff's expert witness. And Dr. Glenn Preminger is the defense expert witness. For all three cases, we welcome our attorney panelists, Ben Rabinowitz from the firm of Gare, Gare, Connison, Rabinowitz, Bloom, Hershenhorn, Steigman, and McCough in New York, and Ann Larson from the firm of Craddock, Candlin, Conti in San Ramon, California. Both Mr. Rabinowitz and Ms. Larson are experienced litigators, and for our program today, Mr. Rabinowitz will be acting as plaintiff's counsel, and Ms. Larson will be defendant's counsel. Dr. Leitner, I turn the program over to you. Thank you very much. And just first, I want to thank the AUA for putting this very instructional, um, very popular session together this, this year. I also want to make a little plug for a uh, AUA Quality Improvement Summit that we're going to be having in Linthicum, Maryland this December 8th. 
This is our fourth Quality Improvement Summit, and it is going to focus on opioid stewardship in urology. It will include not only didactic presentations, but panel discussions as well as Q&As, and we certainly invite you to participate in this very timely educational activity in October. One other point, we are assuming that all of these experts are qualified to testify, and we will not address those issues further in the interest of time. We are going to be focusing on the clinical lessons for you. Again, this is our panel. Let us get right to the case presentation. Mr. Richard L. Tannen is a 29-year-old man with distal renal tubular acidosis, and despite maximal medical management, you can see here that he has extensive bilateral nephrocalcinosis as a result. He has an ongoing need for urologic intervention for symptomatic obstructing stones and is a long-standing patient of the defendant. Mr. Tanner lives and works in New Jersey in retail sales. He's adopted, he's married, he has no children. He consumes one to two beers a night, more on the weekends. His past medical history is important in that he has chronic anxiety and depression, which he treats with alprazolam and siltaliparam. While his renal colic occurs very frequently, with five episodes within this index year requiring hospitalization for pain control, the majority of these stones he's able to pass without intervention. However, secondary to his stone disease, he has bilateral chronic flank pain and is maintained on fentanyl by his primary care provider. He is opioid dependent. He is admitted in New York for symptomatic Steinstrasse that you can see here, and he undergoes an uncomplicated ureteroscopy as well as laser lithotripsy, and you can see an intraoperative image shown here. He has a same-day discharge, and he's given a prescription for postoperative acetaminophen and hydrocodone. He's given 30 tablets, and it's filled on site. The outpatient pharmacy has no history of a filled opioid prescription in the New York monitoring program. His discharge instructions do document his chronic use of fentanyl, and he is cautioned on the combination of fentanyl and hydrocodone. There are no NSAIDs, Tylenol, or other non-narcotic pain medications that are mentioned, and nor is he given instructions to call if he has intolerable pain. He is then discharged home to the adjacent state of New Jersey. After he returns home, he supplements his hydrocodone with his fentanyl, the, the, the benzodiazepine, and the SSRI. Three days post-procedure, he's found unresponsive by his family. He is treated by, with naloxone by the emergency medical technicians who are responding, and he awakens. Unfortunately, he also requires, he also requires uh, ICU and ventilatory support for an aspiration pneumonia and develops hypoxic ischemic encephalopathy with subsequent memory and significant behavioral disruption. We'll now proceed with the direct examination of the defendant, followed by cross-examination, direct examination of the plaintiff's experts, and then of the defense experts. Welcome, Dr. Smith. Good afternoon, Dr. Smith. Good afternoon. You've been practicing urology for a number of years, correct? I have. I've been board certified in urology for at least 20 years. 
and you practice in New York. Is that true? That is correct. And do you have a specialty within urologic practice? I concentrate mainly on kidney and urethral stones. And at some point in 2017, Mr. Richard Tanner came to see you in your practice. Is that correct? That is correct. Was this the first time Mr. Tanner had um, experienced renal colic or kidney stones as of when you first saw him? No. Uh, unfortunately, he had renal tubular acidosis, and which is an, a condition that he cannot remove uh, acids from his blood into the urine, and kidney stones are a common complication of this, and he has had recurrent episodes of this renal colic for many years. And I understand it was a recurring event for Mr. Tanner, is that true? That is correct. And were you able to help this patient? Yes, I was. I did a ureteroscopy on him and removed his stones. Did the procedure go as expected and planned? Yes, it went without any complications. Did Mr. Tanner experience any pain as a result of the surgery? Yes, after the procedure I inserted a urethral stent and urethral stents cause pain. And is this something that you say often, is this something that is common and expected after this type of procedure? Absolutely. Stents cause pain. And did you prescribe any medication for Mr. Tanner for his pain? I prescribed acetophen and hydrocodone, uh, 325 and hydrocodone 10 milligrams uh, to be taken as needed for five days after treatment while he had a stent in place. And hydrocodone is an opioid, is that correct? That is correct. And did you give Mr. Tanner any instructions related to the use of the hydrocodone? Yes, I, we did. I, as well as my residents, always instruct the patient about the combination of medications that he should only take hydrocodone as is necessary. He shouldn't take it for any prolonged period. And as soon as he was free of pain, he should stop that. And we advise him not to take it with any other medications. And did you um, give instructions regarding tapering off the use of hydrocodone? Yes, we did. We told him as soon as he was pain-free, he should stop his hydrocodone. And was he um, advised of any potential negative interactions with other medications or substances? Yes, we told him that he shouldn't be taking this substance with anything, uh, the hydrocodone with any other analgesics. Uh, and particularly with, not with fentanyl. And in terms of alcohol, was he advised not to use alcohol with this medication? <clears throat> I'm not quite certain exactly what I said at the time. It's what is usual practice in our department is that our residents who are very well trained with all this explain it very carefully to the patients and I'm sure that they explained it perfectly and transmitted the message to him. Did you take any other precautions in connection with that hydrocodone prescription, doctor? Yes, our pharmacy prescribes this and as a routine they look up the prescription monitoring program of New York and it's an online database system 
that allows you to see if the patient has been abusing uh, analgesics over the course of time. And did the New York Prescribing Monitoring Program Registry show any prior opioid or other controlled substance prescriptions for Mr. Tanner? No, it did not. Mr. Tanner ultimately experienced a medication overdose, correct? That is correct. After he went home, he supplemented his hydrocodone, apparently with fentanyl, and he also was taking those, more doses of benzodiazepam and, and antidepressants, and he consumed alcohol, and he was found unconscious by his family and was revived by the EMT who administered naloxone and transported him to the hospital, where he eventually recovered. Dr. Smith, do you believe that you followed the standard of care in your treatment of Mr. Tanner? Absolutely. I have no further questions. Doctor, if I may, you say that Mr. Tanner recovered from his overdose, but you do know that he suffered brain damage, correct? Yes, unfortunately, I understand that Mr. Tanner had some lasting impairment to his brain in terms of memory after when, the, his overdose. When we say a lasting condition, can we agree that it's a permanent brain damage? I don't know what his mental status was beforehand, but he alleges that he is not able to have, his memory was impaired after this incident. Certainly whether you know what his condition was beforehand versus now, you're aware he did not suffer any sort of brain damage like he has right now, true? True. All right. We can agree he can no longer concentrate on anything for long periods of time, true? Sorry, would you repeat that? We can agree, sir, that he can no longer concentrate for long periods of time, true? That's what he states, yes. And what he also said and what you learned is that he was able to before this incident, true? Yes. And certainly, you know that he experiences bouts of anger, mood swings, and control problems that he had never experienced before. Am I right? So he alleges. You don't doubt it, do you? I don't know for certain. I don't know what his exact mental condition was beforehand. I know that this is what he's stating now. But sir, you're aware that there is not one single record that suggests he had any brain damage beforehand, true? Correct. You know that he suffered for years from chronic flank pain, right? Correct. And certainly, you knew his primary care physician had prescribed fentanyl patches that is to help correct. alleviate the pain, right? That is correct. It's not very common that I experience patients that have been on fentanyl patches. You indicated to the jury just a moment ago that you checked the New York registry, correct? Correct. That was to find out whether or not there were any prescriptions of medications that were opioids, true? Correct. And you were doing that as a precaution, am I right? That is correct. And you certainly knew that he lived in New Jersey. Correct. But you never checked any base, database in New Jersey, true? That is correct. You say, if I may, that even occasional use of fentanyl could increase opioid tolerance or put him at a higher risk for dependency, right? Correct. You claim in your discharge instructions that you noted the risks of taking hydrocodone and fentanyl in combination. And you say you specifically discussed that with yes. Mr. Tanner? 
Yes? I remember discussing it with the patient that he shouldn't have... <coughs> Do you know if you warned him about fentanyl. fentanyl and hydrocodone? Yes, we, we told him that. Isn't it true, sir, that in the past you said, I assumed that since it's part of the discharge instructions that was done? I did. I said I discussed fentanyl with the patient. I ha didn't discuss any other medications with the patient. I see. So you could only assume about those combinations. Am I right? Correct. When we assume things, can we agree that there are times when we get them wrong? Yes, it's possible. You didn't discuss the dangers of fentanyl and hydrocodone. I did. As far as I recall, I, I don't remember exactly, but fentanyl, patients that are taking fentanyl, it's very unusual, and I would comment on that with the patient. And knowing this, about it, the fact that he was on fentanyl, I went on subsequently to prescribe higher doses of hydrocodone than I normally would, because this is a patient who is very prone to experience pain. Doctor, I noticed you gave two different answers to that question. I asked specifically, you didn't discuss the dangers of fentanyl or hydrocodone with him, and you said, I did, and you said, I don't recall. Correct? That is correct. All right. What dosage of hydrocodone did you prescribe? I prescribed uh, 10 milligrams of hydrocodone with 325 milligrams of acetophen. And isn't there a lower dose formulation for that there drug? There is. Yet you prescribed hydrocodone 10 milligrams, am I right? That is correct. I, gave the reason I did that is because this patient has been on pain medication in the past and he required a higher dose, in my opinion. So you knew that he had been taking narcotic medication in the past, correct? Yes. And you gave him 30 pills, am I right? Yes. Is it the standard prescription of a patient who's also taking other opioids for anxiety, for antidepressants, and drinking one to two drinks during the day to give that much? <clears throat> As I mentioned earlier, our residents and our team advise the patients about their, their other medication and to refrain from taking alcohol as a part of their routine. Uh, they're very competent and I rely on them. So I did not ex exactly explain to the patient all the details about it. I can't recall if I mentioned about alcohol or not. If I'm hearing you correctly, what you're saying is I don't know whether I explained it to the patient. Fair enough? Fair enough, but I do know that my team is very effective and they would report, do, do, the, do due diligence about this. So once again, we're making an assumption, if I may. That is correct. And assumptions are not something that's good for the patient care, true? As a broad principle, you're correct. Doctor, the medical records show that he was taking, if I may, alprazolam and citalopram. So you had access to that information when you prescribed the hydrocodone, true? Yes. Did you warn him about the increased risk of hypotension, respiratory depression, sedation, when hydrocodone is taken with benzodiazepines? No, I wouldn't have done that. I would have left that to my team to do that. And 
So once again, we're making an assumption about what the team did. True? That is correct, but my team is very efficient. I assume you're going to tell the jury your team is the best in the world, correct? It, you, you've got that right. <laughs> and I could, do we have this right also? That you're making an assumption on top of an assumption when we speak about well, this? Well, that may be. All right. Doctor, is there any documentation at all about that discussion in your chart? No. Can we agree that the chart reflects nothing about the assumption that you made? I'm not going to do it. I have not seen any documentation in the chart about the other drugs and the alcohol. So if the discharge instructions don't reference the risk associated with taking hydrocodone and alprazolam, it's possible, in fact, maybe even likely, that the discussion never even took place. No, the dis it is possible, but not likely. And the reason you say it's possible is because of that broad assumption, correct? Because of the effective team that I have in place. And something you never saw in your records, true? Correct. So that if the jury were to look at it right now, they would see nothing backing that up, true? Correct. In fact, Doctor, you've heard the term not written, not done, true? Not necessarily, but it is possible. There's no documentation of a conversation with a patient about the risks associated with hydrocodone and benzodiazepines in combination, true? Correct, no documentation. And your discharge instructions did not include the direction to stop taking the alprazolam if his doctor had previously prescribed it when taking hydrocodone, true? Correct. Doctor, if I may, can we agree briefly? There's no documentation about a conversation in the records about a combination of these drugs, true? True. We can agree that you never checked the New Jersey database, true? True. And we can agree he's brain damaged, correct? I didn't hear the last one. And we can agree he is brain damaged, true? That is. Apparent brain damage. Thank you. Nothing further. Now call. Your Honor, I now call Dr. Offenberg. Dr. Offenberg, have you had an opportunity to review the medical records and other documentation in connection with this case? Yes, I have. And have you been able to form an opinion to a reasonable degree of medical certainty as to whether or not there were departures from accepted standards of medical care? Uh, yes, I have. Would you please tell us what the opinion that you have is to a reasonable degree of sure. medical certainty? So I find no fault with uh, Dr. Smith's surgical skills in this case. However, I believe his postoperative care uh, of Mr. Tanner has fallen short of acceptable standards. Uh, and ultimately contributed to Mr. Tanner's opioid overdose, which of course has caused significant physical harm to him and major emotional stress for both him and his entire family. All right, so let's be a little bit more specific. What aspects of the postoperative care were substandard in your view? Well, first, he, he provided an opioid analgesic to the patient for postoperative pain. Without any clear indication, he considered other alternatives for pain control in this setting that maybe have been safer and equally effective. What alternatives were available to Dr. Smith? Well, there are, there are many alternatives for pain management. The options range from non-opioid medications alone, such as the acetaminophen he gave him in combination with opioid, or NSAIDs uh, that are very common. 
Further, there are non-pharmacologic interventions for pain. In fact, pain management guidelines that are published jointly by the American Pain Society and the American Society of Anesthesiologists and others state quite clearly that physicians should take a multimodal approach to post-operative pain and should consider non-opioid alternatives. Isn't a prescription for hydrocodone and acetaminophen one of the standard options for treating post-operative pain following the type of surgery performed on Mr. Tanner? Uh, yes, it is. However, just because it's among the standard options, it doesn't mean it's right for this patient. Mr. Tanner obviously had a complicated history with chronic pain and pain medication. He was also taking additional medications to treat anxiety and depression. These were factors that put him at higher risk for opioid dependence as well as an overdose event. In my opinion, an EDSED or an acetaminophen alone would have been a better way to go. Or it may have been helpful to monitor Mr. Tanner in the hospital if it was felt his pain was going to be substantial to not be controlled with those medications. Further, Dr. Smith could have sought the advice from a pain expert to develop an individualized pain strategy for this complex patient. Before we get to the other medications Mr. Tanner was taken, do you have an opinion about the dosage of hydrocodone that was given? Uh, I do have some questions about his judgment in prescribing a higher dose of hydrocodone to this patient in the 10 milligram formulation, given lower doses are available. What about the fact that 30, 30 tablets were prescribed? Similarly, I think that was likely excessive as well. The CDC guidelines for prescribing opioids for chronic pain are on point here. They say physicians should start with the lowest effective dosage of opioids and should also prescribe no greater than the quantity needed for the expected duration of pain severe enough to require opioids. Now, specific to ureteroscopy, unfortunately, there's not much literature to directly guide physicians prescribing opioids for uh, postoperative pain. However, there is some literature in other surgical procedures. A 2007 study by Dr. Hill and colleagues that was published in the Annals of Surgery uh, shows that more than 75% of patients who underwent a laparoscopic cholecystectomy, an arguably more painful procedure, took 15 or less 5 milligram opioid tablets post-surgery. So in light of the guidelines and this data, I feel that prescribing 30 tablets to this patient of the higher 10 milligram dosage strikes me as somewhat excessive. But the plaintiff did not take 30 tablets all at once to overdose. So why does the quantity prescribed matter? Sure. Well, I think it's indicative, you know, of a larger issue that the prescription may have been written without much thought into the risks of over-prescribing these medications. Both the high-dose formulation, the quantity prescribed, and excessive what most patients likely need after ureteroscopy indicate that perhaps this prescription was given to prevent the patient from calling or to make sure that he had no other issues with pain. And although such over-prescription uh, may help reduce those calls for a few, of a few patients, uh, it, it also may lead to an excessive supply for patients um, after surgery that's unnecessary for most. Mr. Tanner experienced his overdose three days following his discharge from the hospital. Yes, that's right. Well, let's talk about the other medications Mr. Tanner was taking. His PCP had prescribed fentanyl prior to surgery to help him cope with the chronic pain associated with the distal RTA, right? Uh, yes, that's what Mr. Tanner's records indicate. Would it ever be appropriate to prescribe another opioid like hydrocodone in conjunction with fentanyl? Well, taking in opioids in combination, such as fentanyl plus hydrocodone, is not unheard of, but it, but it is certainly risky. It can increase the risk of significant side effects like sedation, and at a minimum, it should be closely monitored, and the patient should be counseled to seek medical attention immediately if he experiences drowsiness, changes in breathings, or other symptoms. 
So in this case, the risk may have been avoided altogether if you prescribed a non-opioid alternative. Mr. Tanner also had a prescription for benzodiazepine, correct? Uh, yes, he appeared to have standing instructions from his primary care physician to take that medication as well. Are there problems with taking these medications in co combination with opioids, like hydrocodone? Certainly. Uh, combined use of benzodiazepines and opioids is a real problem. Uh, it significantly increases the risk of oversedation, which is the inability to wake and respond to stimuli. Both these drugs individually carry risks of depressed breathing, which can be fatal. And again, the risk is heightened significantly when they are taken in combination. Actually, based on this, in 2016, the FDA started requiring what are called boxed warnings for both opioids and benzodiazepines. That's their strongest category of warning about the serious risk of co-administration of these two medications. So it wouldn't be unexpected for a person taking hydrocodone and benzodiazepines to lose consciousness or experience difficulty breathing. Uh, on the contrary, those, those are known risks, and particularly in a person taking higher doses of one or both of those medications. But Dr. Smith didn't prescribe benzodiazepines to Mr. Tanner, did he? No, he did not. But it appears he knew, or at least he should have known, that Mr. Tanner was taking alprazolam on an as-needed basis for anxiety symptoms. This is indicated clearly in Mr. Tanner's records, but nothing in the discharge instructions advises Mr. Tanner about the risks of mixing benzodiazepines and hydrocodone. This was a significant failure on Dr. Smith's part, in my opinion. Dr. Smith and his team should have discussed these risks with Mr. Tanner very explicitly, and the discharge instructions should have warned him specifically to avoid taking benzodiazepines while taking hydrocodone. Dr. Smith claims that he or his staff, and I'm quoting, that they would have reviewed. They would have reviewed the risks associated with the interactions between hydrocodone and every drug Mr. Tanner was taking, including the benzodiazepines. That that would have. What's your opinion on that, doctor? Well, frankly, saying you would have done something because it's your standard practice is different than saying you, in fact, did it. And even if someone did discuss the risk with Mr. Tanner while he was in the hospital, the discharge instructions didn't contain that information. So the message didn't get re reinforced in writing. If the discharge instructions had been clear, Mr. Tanner may have never overdosed. He and his family would have never been, would have been spared the trauma of the overdose itself, plus the pain and financial burden of the prolonged hospital stay and the rehab that Mr. Tanner has had to go through, not to mention the lasting effects of his brain damage. Thank you. No further questions. Counsel? Dr. Offenberg, are there any evidence-based clinical guidelines that describe the appropriate dosage of opioids following a uteroscopy with lithotripsy procedure? Well, as I said, the CDC guidelines suggest that prescribing the lowest effective dose is advisable. But they do not specifically indicate what the lowest effective dose means in any given case or following a given procedure. Is that true? That's true. So you agree that there are no evidence-based clinical guidelines that describe the appropriate dosage of opioids following the procedure this patient had? Uh, I'm not aware of any guidelines on the specific dosage prescribed, no. And you testified about a study published in the Annals of Surgery in 2017. Didn't that study indicate also that data to inform surgeons on the optimal dose of opioids to prescribe after common general surgical procedures is lacking? 
I believe that was the author's opinion, yes. And that study also showed wide variation in the number of opioid pills prescribed to patients undergoing the same operation, correct? Yes, that's true. So you can't cite to any guidelines or best practice in the medical community that establishes that Dr. Smith's prescription of nearly a week's worth of hydrocodone tablets to Mr. Tanner after surgery was excessive, can you? Not specifically, although I think it flows from the Hill article that we've discussed where the vast majority of patients took only 15 pills post-surgery. And by the Hill article, do you mean the article that also specifically stated that data on optimal dosage of opioids is lacking and that documented wide variations in numbers of pills prescribed? That article? Uh, yes, that article makes those points. Now, hydrocodone and acetaminophen is one of the standard treatment options for postoperative pain in patients like Mr. Tanner who have had this procedure. True? Uh, yes, it is one of the options, but not the best one for a patient with a history of chronic pain and opioid use like Mr. Tanner, in my opinion. Are you aware of any study or guideline that specifically advises against prescribing hydrocodone and acetaminophen with appropriate warnings and precautions for a short time to help a patient deal with post-operative pain? No, although I don't think Dr. Smith's warnings and precautions about drug interactions were adequate quit in this case. Okay, so let's discuss Mr. Tanner's other prescriptions then. His primary care physician had prescribed fentanyl for pain associated with Mr. Tanner's distal RTA and associated symptoms, including recurrent kidney stones, correct? That's correct. But as you testified a few minutes ago, the CDC's guidelines for prescribing opioids for chronic pain recommend that non-opioid therapy should be tried and optimized first, correct? Yes. Do you know if Mr. Tanner's piece PCP followed those guidelines and tried non-opioid alternatives before he prescribed fentanyl? Uh, I do not know. And a patient who has been taking an opioid like fentanyl to manage chronic pain may develop tolerance to that medication or to opioids in general over time, correct? Yes, that's true. And in fact, you've described Mr. Tanner. You yourself have described him as opioid tolerant, right? I believe he was, yes. And there is also a medical condition known as hyperalgesia, or a greater sensitivity to pain, that can be a side effect of sustained opioid use. Yes. So it's possible that Dr. Smith concluded that prescribing a non-opioid alternative or ordering a lower dose formulation of hydrocodone for post-operative pain would not have been effective in this particular patient in Mr. Tanner's case. Isn't that right? That's possible, although there's no indication in the records that Dr. Smith even considered other alternative therapies. Doctor, when you make a decision to prescribe a particular medication, do you typically document all the alternatives you considered and reject it? Uh, not typically, no. And Dr. Smith's discharge instructions to Mr. Clanner, Tanner clearly described the risks associated with combining hydrocodone and fentanyl, right? Those risks were documented. Yet Mr. Tanner made the decision to take the fentanyl along with the hydrocodone following his surgery despite Dr. Smith's discharge instructions. 
Well, I question whether he really understood those risks, but yes, he took fentanyl and hydrocodone. Physicians are responsible for explaining known risks to their patients, right? Yes. But they cannot control what the patient does after the risks have been explained, can they? That's true. Now, Mr. Tanner's primary care physician had prescribed fentanyl and benzodiazepine for Mr. Tanner prior to the surgery. Uh, he did prescribe both, yes. And presumably, the PCP reviewed the risks of combining fentanyl, an opioid, and benzodiazepines with Mr. Tanner as well, true? I have no idea. But that would have been his responsibility as the prescribing physician, correct? Yes. Yet Mr. Tanner made the decision to take the hydrocodone and the fentanyl and benzodiazepines all at the same time without checking first with either Dr. Smith or with his PCP, correct? Well, he took those drugs at the same time, yes. But Dr. Smith's prescription added a new opioid to Mr. Tanner's previous regimen, a regimen that he had presumably been taking without issues. Given his stability on this regimen, he may not have recognized that it put him at risk for ill effects when adding more opioids to manage this acute post-operative pain. And it was Mr. Tanner who made the decision to drink alcohol while taking these medications, despite warnings in Dr. Smith's discharge instructions about the potential risks associated with consuming alcohol while taking hydrocodone, right? Apparently, yes. Thank you. No further questions. Good afternoon, Dr. Preminger. Good afternoon. Have you reviewed Mr. Dr. Smith's notes and other medical records in this case? I have, yes. And have you formed any opinions regarding Dr. Smith's care of Mr. Tanner, including his post-surgical care? Yes, I believe that Dr. Smith acted well within the medically appropriate standard of care throughout his treatment with Mr. Tanner. We've heard Dr. Offenberg testify that Dr. Smith should not have prescribed hydrocodone at all in light of Mr. Tanner's medical history. How do you respond to that? Well, I disagree. There was a previous prescription for fentanyl patches, but with appropriate counseling <coughs> to avoid adverse fentanyl hydrocodone interactions, the patient's postoperative pain could still have been managed with hydrocodone and acetaminophen. Regarding Mr. Tanner's use of fentanyl to manage the chronic flank pain in the weeks leading up to the stone surgery, how might that have affected Mr. Tanner? Well, it's not clear how frequently Mr. Tanner actually used the fentanyl patches prior to his surgery. But generally speaking, sustained use of opioids in managing the pain associated with recurrent stone passage secondary to Mr. Tanner's distal renal tubular acidosis and associated symptoms can lead to opioid tolerance, opioid dependence, hyperanalgesia, and an increased risk of opioid abuse, misuse, and overdose. That is why the CDC guidelines recommend utilization of non-opioid therapies for chronic pain in the first instance. And in that long list of potential effects that the fentanyl may have caused, you mentioned hyperalgesia. What is that? Well, hyperanalgesia describes an increased sensitivity to pain 
and that is often a side effect of sustained opioid use. So the more opioids a person takes to manage chronic pain, the more sensitive he may become to the very same pain? Unfortunately, yes. So in this case, with reasonable medical probability, how, do, how did the fentanyl prescription affect Dr. Smith's decisions regarding post-surgical pain management? Well, Mr. Tanner seemed quite concerned about post-operative pain before surgery, and after surgery, he reported that he was experiencing significant pain, likely indicating hyperanalgesia. It is also likely that the preoperative use of fentanyl patches causes Mr. Tanner to build up some degree of opioid tolerance, which Ms. Dr. Smith could have taken into account in determining an effective postoperative pain management strategy for Mr. Tanner. Was the dosage that Dr. Smith chose for the hydrocodone prescription within the standard of care? A short-term prescription for hydrocodone and acetaminophen at the 10 milligram, 325 milligram formulation is certainly within the acceptable standards of care, yes. And is five days prescription, is that a short-term prescription as you've just described? Yes. But aren't there lower dosages available? Yes, but physicians shouldn't necessarily start with a lower, the lowest dose if he believes that it won't work to manage the patient's post-operative pain. And you can expect that an opioid-tolerant patient would require larger doses to manage his pain than an opioid-naive patient, someone who has never taken an opioid prior. Did the previous fentanyl prescription impose any particular obligations on Dr. Smith? Well, Dr. Smith and his team absolutely should have counseled Mr. Tanner about the risks associated with opioid use. They should have stressed the importance of tapering off use of the hydrocodone as soon as Mr. Tanner's pain uh, was under control and began to subside. And they should have warned him about the risks of combined fentanyl and hydrocodone. They did all of these things. And given the prior history of fentanyl use, plus the fact that he was prescribing an opioid himself, Dr. Smith should have checked the New York State Controlled Substance website to make sure that there were no additional controlled substance prescriptions on record for Mr. Tannen and Dr. Smith wasn't aware of. He did this, and the New York State Registry did not demonstrate any evidence of additional prescriptions. Now, we know this patient lived in New Jersey. Was Dr. Smith obligated to check the New Jersey Controlled Substance Registry as well? Well, ideally, you'd like to think so, but physicians typically only have access to the registry of the state in which they are licensed. So he may not have been able to check the New Jersey registry. This is one of the inherent challenges of a state-based system for tracking controlled substances. Does the standard of care require that Dr. Smith or his team also counsel Mr. Tanner regarding the risks of interactions between hydrocodone and benzodiazepines, as Dr. Offenberg testified? Yes, I believe that Dr. Smith testified he is confident his team had discussed with Mr. Tanner these risks. The discharge instructions don't specifically reference diazepines, but they should 
talk about the risks associated with combined hydrocodone with any alcohol or other central nervous system depressants. Furthermore, I assume that Mr. Tanner was already aware of the risks of combining an opioid given his primary care physician had prescribed both fentanyl and benzodiazepines at some point. In your experience, Dr. Preminger, do patients always follow doctor's orders when it comes to taking medications for pain management? Well, unfortunately, the answer is a resounding no. Patients, particularly those ex who experience severe, acute, or chronic pain, often self-medicate. They mix prescriptions for multiple painkillers. They take more than the recommended dose, or they take other types trying to find something that will stop their pain. Sometimes it's just pure accidental overdose. For example, they lose count of the pills that they're taking. Often they don't take seriously the warnings that are offered by either the physician or the pharmacist. Basically, warnings and discharge instructions or medication guides provided by pharmacists provide important information but don't always work to change the patient's behavior. Counselor, I think we're running a little late today, so if we want to get the cross-examination of this witness in, perhaps we could wrap this up. Do you think that Dr. Smith followed the appropriate standard of care in treating Mr. Tanner? Yes, I do. Thank you, doctor. Good afternoon, doctor. Good afternoon. You are testifying on behalf of the defendant, correct? Yes, I am. And you're saying that the defendant, Dr. Smith, did all that any physician could reasonably have done to prevent this overdose, correct? Yes, I agree. Everything he could have done, true? Yes. Couldn't he have prescribed some non-opioid alternative? He could have, yes, but to consider what treatment would actually work to alleviate Mr. Tanner's pain following the procedure, after all, untreated or undertreated pain can be very damaging to the patient's physical and mental well-being. It can slow recovery from surgery and lead to unanticipated readmissions after discharge. Many opioid-tolerant patients still require short-term opioid prescriptions to manage pain following surgery, and hydrocodone is one of the standard treatment options. Would you agree that the goal is to get a clear picture of the patient? No question. So couldn't he have spoken with his own PCP? Well, he could have, but I don't believe that that would have changed the situation. He checked the wrong state's database, didn't he? He did. So he could have contacted his primary care physician, no question about that, true? Yes, he could have. He knew he lived in New Jersey. Correct. He knew he checked one database. Correct. Yes. And he knew he didn't have the other database's information. True? That's true. That's doing all he could do to ensure proper care. Correct? That's correct. And in fact, even if the hydrocodone was appropriate, he could have prescribed a lower dosage. True? True, but not necessarily appropriate. He could have tried a lower dosage first to see if it worked, correct? He could have, but it might not have controlled the patient's pain. I noticed you said it might not have, so are you making an assumption of that as well? Well, yes, especially in opioid-tolerant patients. 
So there's no indication in the discharge instructions about the risk of ta taking hydrocodone and benzodiazepines simultaneously. True? True. And in fact, doctor, one of the things that you know, <clears throat> he was taking benzodiazepines, his medical records reflected this, shouldn't the discharge instructions have contained a specific warning regarding the potential risks associated with benzodiazepines and hydrocodone interactions? Ideally, yes. You said yes, correct? Correct. Thank you, doctor. Thank you. That concludes case one. Thank you to our panel. And we'll ask while we're switching the uh, panelists out for the case two, perhaps um, Mr. Rabinowitz and Ms. Larson could give some brief comments uh, from their perspective. Sure. You know what, if I can, what I'd like to do for maybe two or three minutes? About two minutes. Two minutes, two minutes. Dr. Preminger, would you be kind enough to just be the witness again for just a moment? <laughs> Dr. Preminger, can we agree that at all times, your most important concern is the health of the patient, true? The health and safety of the patient, yes. I noticed you used the word safety. Can we agree also the third would be the well-being of the patient, true? Correct. And that's one of the things that you teach your residents, am I right? Always. One of the things that you also teach your residents is to write down information, correct? That's correct. So there's no doubt about what happened, true? True. And in fact, you have even taught them, write it down so you never cross-examined, not written, not done, true? True. And in fact, that's exactly the issue we have here, isn't it? Well, if we have a certain protocol in place, which we do, for managing our post-operative patients, it is our understanding that that protocol is followed. And in fact, when you speak about protocols, are you aware that the defendant doctor in this case testified before our jury he made assumptions as to whether or not the protocol was followed? I'm well, just asking you if you're aware of it, sir. Well, when you have a, a solid team that takes care of business, I know that it's getting done. So let me try my question one more time, sir, if I may. Are you aware that he made certain assumptions? Yes. Do you teach your residents the best way to practice medicine is to make assumptions? No. In fact, that's exactly what you don't teach them, am I right? That's right. And you would never teach them to do that, true? Because we have protocols that we follow. And you also know that it is a departure from accepted standards of medical practice for a doctor to tell his residents, make assumptions. It's the best way to treat. True? True. Thank you, doctor. All right, I just wanted to give a little bit of a realistic feel for it. Ms. Larson, do you have any comments from your perspective? <laughs> no, I, I don't. I just, everybody knows the importance. Um, the opioid issue is out there. It's huge. It's, if it's not case-driven, it's licensing boards. This is where I see these matters coming up all the time. So. Take those extra classes in those. That's the only thing I'm going to say. I'm not going to teach them on the cross-exam, <laughs> but that's a good one. 